Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Walker, who is Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Dr. Walker has written a new book with Brazos Press, an imprint of Baker Publishing Group. The book releases the first week of May, and it's titled Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. Dr. Walker, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Zach. It's uh, nice to be with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, before we discuss your book, can you tell our listeners some a uh, little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. So um, I've been here at Southern. I'm, I'm finishing up my third semester of teaching. And so I've been here for um, getting close to about a year and a half. And before that, I spent uh, six years working for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, um, which is an entity of the Southern Baptist Convention. And before that, I spent some time in a DC think tank at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, and so my professional career has been uh, around issues of public engagement, public theology, ethics, religion. Uh, I like to joke with people that the things you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table, namely religion and politics, is what I do for a living. So uh, that's kind of my uh, my main area, and uh, I've I've had a lot of um, particular kind of spinoff interests, uh, which has obviously been religious liberty, which hints the book here, uh, but then also issues of sexual ethics, um, issues of natural law. Um, I've written a book on transgenderism. So uh, basically anything controversial under the sun, uh, <laughs> I feel like I've probably had some take here or there on the subject. Well, in, in this book, Liberty for All, you're, you're offering readers a public theology of right. religious liberty. Um, maybe we can begin by just having you explain how you're approaching the task of writing a book like this. And, yeah. and maybe you can kind of squeeze out the essential truths that you're trying to communicate in this book. Yeah, sure. So the book is an adaptation from my dissertation that I wrote here at Southern Seminary. And when I set out to explore 
this concept of religious liberty. Um, it, it kind of happened by accident. Um, it, it began out of a uh, out of a seminar paper that led me to obviously a prospectus and then a full dissertation. And what I noticed is that when um, Protestants and evangelicals in particular have talked about religious liberty, uh, they had more or less kind of categorized religious liberty as um, a contingency of history uh, that was simply the product of historical forces refining itself over time. Or it's a matter of First Amendment jurisprudence. And really what you didn't find were systematic categories um, to understand religious liberty uh, as a uh, as an essential pillar of public theology, that it's it's not an afterthought, that it's actually integrally tied to the Christian's place in the world and in this age. And so in my research, you know, I would find that people would maybe find a particular verse and I isolate the verse as a proof text for religious liberty, which isn't necessarily on its surface um, bad. But there wasn't really any attempt to more broadly connect religious liberty to um, biblical theology more broadly and, and to social ethics. And so the, the big task of the book is to make the argument that religious liberty is not an accident of history. It's, it's tied to our faith. And in fact, um, historically speaking, the very first instance of religious liberty on the world stage comes from Tertullian, one of uh, an early church father. And so I think that's interesting that this whole idea um, you can trace to ideas coming from Christian thinkers. Um, Tertullian wasn't necessarily developing a robust theology of religious liberty, but the notion that people should be uncoerced in how they come to understand religious truths, um, to me, that's speaking to the reality of some questions about anthropology in the Imago Dei. And so when I wrote this book, what I attempted to do was to create a public theology and social ethic of religious liberty around the categories of eschatology, anthropology, and missiology. And we'll probably unpack those three categories um, through the rest of this interview. Uh, but again, just to reiterate this, when I, when I, when I surveyed... Uh, where religious liberty even popped up in evangelical ethics books. Uh, it was virtually not present at all. Uh, you, you would have in ethics books, which is my the discipline that I teach at the seminary, you would have whole chapters devoted to homosexuality or abortion or issues of civil disobedience or just war. Um, and if you had something like religious liberty um, at all ever discussed, um, it would maybe be tucked under the category of church-state relations, um, but more often than that, not really discussed at all. Uh, there was one book whose title I, I will uh, not share that's you know almost a thousand pages in length um, that's very popular amongst conservative evangelicals. And when I went to look uh, to see what this author had said about religious liberty, um, I think maybe six pages of scattered references to religious liberty were present in the whole thousand-page volume or so. And so that, that meant to me there was a lot of um, undeveloped thinking around the subject. And so that's really, uh, I mean, the, the, the fool's errand of a, of a scholarly task is to think that um, 
you know, you're saying something wholly new and innovative. And I really don't think that I'm saying anything wholly new and innovative um, insofar as I'm taking a lot of pre-existing arguments that have existed in kind of piecemeal form and tied them together under a broader theological framework. Now, I, I do think I make some some innovative arguments here and there, uh, but more than anything, um, this is a book to demonstrate that religious liberty is not an accident of history. It's tied to the logic of our faith, um, and it's a presuppositional foundation to questions about uh, the nature of political authority and eternal authority, questions about who we are as image bearers, as far as our reason, our consciences, and our issues of, of moral agency. Uh, and it's questions, it resolves around questions such as, uh, how does the Christian interact in society? How do we make sense of religious difference in this particular age? Uh, and so to me, um, I actually think how someone answers the question of religious liberty is going to be a massive um, tell or revelation on their broader overall public theology. Robert George, he comments in the foreword to the book that this is a book that can be appreciated by Catholics and Protestants, believers and unbelievers more broadly too, which is certainly true. But your intended audience, nevertheless, is it, it's a Christian audience as you're, you're, you're helping make sense of and even garner appreciation for religious liberty within within Christian thought. Um, yet a very serious point uh, that you make in the book is one that addresses Western society as a whole, that 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 religious liberty is intelligible and choice-worthy for a society to organize itself around. However, these are a set of ideas that a secular culture cannot uphold over time or continue to value yeah. apart from <laughs> the, the foundation of Christian social thought. Can you, can yeah. you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, th this is one of the like really kind of pronounced paradoxes and tensions of my book is the, the book is essentially a Christian natural law argument for religious liberty. Um, so the, the, the tension point is, well, how can you say uh, it's a principle of natural law wherein diverse peoples ought to be able to grasp the, the goods of religious liberty while also saying that if Christianity declines in society, uh, then religious liberty is going to decline as well. That's a paradox that I acknowledge is a tension I'm going to have to live with. Um, but I should also say this. Uh, I am not doing this book um, in the mode of kind of a view from nowhere. So I, very explicitly, it's a Christian natural law tradition. Uh, there are various natural law traditions out there. Um, and so what I'm trying to say is, uh, the way that Christianity has understood the natural law, it it kind of outputs the doctrine of religious liberty that I propose um, in in the book. But that's I, I, that's a tension I, I fully live with, and um, one of my arguments is is where you have a society that casts off both the the natural law and it casts off. Christianity, um, what you're going to have is a society that has most likely what I call, and I shouldn't say this isn't unique to me, but uh, has eminentized the eschaton or eminentized some version of an, of an eschaton, which means um, where you have societies that can have some 
totalizing universal understanding of the just society uh, where that's present the question you then have to ask yourself is how do i make room for those in society who disagree with my understanding of the just society uh, because that's one of the one of the lurking tendencies of totalitarianism is to basically dispense with any ideology that sees that totalitarianism sees as an impediment to to totalitarianism's idea of the just society. And so totalitarianism or any totalizing vision for society, um, that's predominantly the the reality born of a secular ethic, one where transcendence has been kind of jettisoned and you've brought kind of eminentized judgment into the present. And then you can easily want to eliminate those viewpoints in society that again are an impediment to the just society, so to speak. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I'm kind of self admittedly all over the place in the book saying that uh, society needs religious liberty more broadly, but where society casts off Christianity, it's going to be hard to find a doctrine of religious liberty. And I have a lot of um, friends who I like to wrestle around these types of issues because some people will say that no religious liberty is uh, an intelligible good that all societies can organize themselves around. And I think that's a hypothetical ideal. Um, but I think we should also recognize that through the history of um, various political societies and political communities, religious liberty has often case been the exception to the norm. The norm has been um brutal inquisitions and some form of, of authoritarianism or um, some type of hostility to dissent. And so to me, the book that I'm, I've written here is a call for Christians to understand uh, our place in society and moreover to, to want to champion these ideas for the sake of society, because if society goes the direction that we are going, um, and I'm very clear and explicit about this in the book, on our current trajectory, religious liberty is going to decline. Well, I guess uh, keeping with the topic of, of, of kind of the, the Christian contribution to the way we think of religious freedom, religious freedom functioning at least partially as a, as a preservation of society. Yeah. Is, is, is there a Christian consensus on viewing religious freedom as an ultimate right? Or is there some, some differing views there or, and I guess more broadly, how, how ought Christians to be thinking about natural law rights in, in public engagement? Yeah. So when we talk about the, the ultimate versus the penultimate, um, you know, the, the penultimate is referring to uh, effectively affairs of society that pertain to common life. Uh, the penultimate is not the ultimate. And so when I say that I'm dealing with ultimate reality, that means I'm dealing with reality as it is before God. And penultimate reality uh, are those issues pertaining to the state and, and what ingredients are necessary for the functioning of life together um, in a given political community and political society. The, the language of penultimacy and ultimacy are really, really important because if you, if you don't de- 
uh, deploy these terms, there can be a lot of confusion and there can be a lot of rejection of religious liberty from Christian quarters. Uh, and so I, I, I say this in the book and I, I have to be sure I say this in every single interview. Religious liberty is not an ultimate right. Um, no one has a right before God to offend and rebel against God. God does not honor our rebellion. And so as I write in the book, um, this is an interim social ethic that at some point in the future, God is going to bring to an end because he is going to bring all rebellious false thought um, to judgment. Uh, but that raises the question, uh, do we have a penultimate right to religious liberty? And that's where I would say, yes, uh, we have a penultimate right to religious liberty because I don't think God has authorized the state. And this is a, a, a major theological principle of the book. God has not authorized the state to make adjudicating judgments on false belief or true belief. And in the book, I, I root that in arguments that individuals like David Van Drunen and Jonathan Lehman are making about the Noahic Covenant. Um, and that's a whole separate line of argument we could discuss later on if you'd like. Uh, and so to me, because uh, government does not have control over all jurisdictions of our lives, um, we have to leave room for people um, to be free to be wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that people are free to be wrong to a maximal or absolute degree. Uh, what I call for in the book is for deliberative bodies and, and uh, of, of political bodies to figure out through their constitutional provisions uh, how much religious liberty society can give to its citizens. And I think this is something that I want to, you know, we can say in an American context, I think the First Amendment is actually biblical insofar as the First Amendment, uh, it, it gives um, the default of liberty to the citizen, and it gives to the government the burden for the government to prove when and under what circumstances the government ought to restrict religious liberty. And this is simply under the category that um, the government has a lot of control and authority over our lives. It doesn't have control over the conscience and what the conscience believes and how the conscience comes to grasp certain truths. But when persons act on consciences in public in ways that do danger to the common good, uh, such as public safety or public health, um, it is within the purview of the state to restrict religious liberty. But even when it restricts religious liberty there, um, you know, John Leland, one of the Baptist architects of religious liberty, he said it's not the job of the government to, to determine whether someone who's acting improperly in society, whether they are acting uh, on the basis of true theological belief or errant theological belief. You're not, you're not judging the, the theological system, you're judging the actions. Uh, and so to me, this, this means that government has, has a pretty agnostic role. Um, as far as identifying uh, who God is in society. Uh, and, and a lot of people don't like saying that. Um, but we have to think about this from the perspective of what if we were minorities in a given political community? Um, I wouldn't want a society dominated by Mormons to be making ex-cathedra judgments from the state downward 
about who God is and how God wants to be worshipped, simply because um, I reject Mormonism. Uh, and so a lot of this, uh, a lot of our discomfort around religious liberty at times, it comes from the fact that uh, we have found ourselves in the majority position. And when you say religious liberty for all people, uh, it means that you are giving rights and freedoms to those who are not necessarily in power. Uh, and I mean, this is religious liberty presumes that minorities and dissenters have rights. Uh, and it's not to relativize the difference and distinctions um, between religions whatsoever. Um, in fact, in, in the book, I write about how true religious liberty ought to make us more fulsome and clear about the nature of our disagreement. But rather, religious liberty for minorities and for dissenters uh, is giving us ways to work out our differences in society, um, not through violence, but through the ballot box and through deliberative constitutional mechanisms. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off very good well you know you mentioned uh van drunnen there for for a minute and uh you engage his book uh quite a bit divine covenants and moral order mm -hmm. and um at points he's he's critical of of folks maybe like like robert george who, yeah. who accepts uh on the topic of natural law that there is good that can come from contributions yeah. on natural law of, of of other religions yeah other traditions of of thought um, can you talk to us about how you're interacting with scholarship on natural law outside of uh, Christian literature? Yeah, so I mean, I, I'll I'll be pretty forthcoming. Um, you know, the natural law is a a massive area of of research in my scholarly work, um, but I'm doing it mostly in the context of the Christian tradition, um, kind of the, the classical synthesis tradition from Aquinas onward, and, and particularly in the former Reformed tradition. Now, obviously, um, you can look at individuals like Grotius, Aristotle. Um, there's a, a long tradition of non-Christian kind of natural law theory. Um, it's not that I'm uninterested in the kind of the non-Christian natural law tradition in as much as I'm a Christian ethicist, and so I'm, I'm coming at this from the Christian tradition. Um, but you did raise a really interesting question um, about some disagreements that scholars like Robert George uh, and David Van Drunen would have around conversations of the natural law and religious liberty. And so, I mean, just to kind of summarize the critique, Van Drunen 
critiques Robert George uh, because he thinks Robert George has too, too cheerfully optimistic views on just the nature of religious difference, that religion qua religion is always and forever a good. I don't want to go that far either. Um, what I hear Dr. George saying in his comments, he's talking about religion in a Tocquevillian sense, that religion is um, it, it's, it's an, an institution in society that gives people their moral bearings born from ultimate reality. Um, and we have to hold that carefully and acknowledging that um, some people's or a lot of people's understandings of ultimate reality is wrong. Um, but then what do you do with people who are wrong? So I do think it's a legitimate criticism of Dr. George's work by Van Drunen um, that Dr. George is kind of, uh, he, he, he's not relativizing truth claims, but he's saying that basically religion in itself is always good. Um, I wouldn't quite go that far. At the same time, um, to be charitable to Dr. George, uh, and I think using Van Drunen's own categories, uh, I don't think Dr. George would say that there are uh, religion and religious difference is is not good in its kind of ultimate expression as far as whether there's one God or three gods. Rather, uh, I think Dr. George is saying that from a penultimate level, religion is, I think, helpful uh, if only because um, it's helping people derive a sense of meaning uh, outside the material world and looking beyond the material horizon. Uh, so, I mean, this is this is a kind of a razor thin debate you have to walk right here because uh, simultaneously you want to affirm that people with free consciences are going to come to conclusions about religion that you may disagree with. Well, at the same time, um, people who come to wrongful conclusions about religion they can still lead meaningful lives um, based on how they're understanding some religious truth, even if we think that religious truth is wrong. I mean, insofar as you know, you, you want to call the Abrahamic tradition of religion, uh, of, of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, all three of those traditions, they disagree on who God is as far as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But they all three agree on kind of at least the penultimate natural law groundings of what marriage is as far as a conjugal union of man and woman. So insofar as those three traditions are teaching truthfully um, about what marriage is, uh, I think we can say then that should be welcomed and appreciated insofar as those religions are teaching good norms. Um, but then we can't then go and say, well, because they teach accurately about marriage, that therefore they teach accurately on matters of soteriology. And we just need to be very careful in drawing clear boundaries of, of yes, this, no to that, so to speak. Yeah, very good. I think that's really, really well said. Well, as we think about the, the framework, um, the structure of your book, you're, you're giving us a, a biblical theological framework. Um, for Christians to think about um, ethics and, and, and these public issues. Um, can you talk to us about how you frame the book around, um, and you've, you've mentioned these, these um, 
these areas of eschatology, anthropology, and missiology, and how these areas sort of provide the grounds for yeah. for a sound uh, religious liberty. Yeah. So uh, I'll 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 do this. I got to be brief because uh, I could, you know, talk an hour on each category. So when I talk about eschatology, um, I'm I'm taking as my foundation point there that Jesus Christ is King. Um, he's king over a kingdom that has been inaugurated um, in the present, but it's not been brought to consummation yet. Um, and so we are living in this interim period, what I call a secular period, uh, which means it's it's not secular doesn't mean anti-God or anti-religion. Um, the secular or the seculum, as it's been classically understood, is uh it, it's an age that is passing away and, and not an eternal age. And this age that we're living in right now, um, there is a secular age that someday is going to come to a conclusion. Um, but what Christians teach is that um, the dawn of redemption, the, the new age is in the present, this, this language of inaugurated, excuse me, eschatology. And so if that's the case, if Christ is king and reigning right now, but the kingdom has not been brought in full, that has massive repercussions for how we understand the nature of religious difference and pluralism. It means we ought to expect for religious difference to exist today. And it, it ought to, uh, we ought to expect it to exist because not all has yet been brought under the reign of Christ. Uh, and so if, if that um, domain where Christ is king is is his and his alone that then asks that, that forces us to ask questions about okay well then how does how is this kingship being mediated uh who has authority over how that over how that kingdom is mediated and when i look at scripture i i see that in this age it's the church who has the adjudicating power to declare what is of faith and what what is not of faith uh, that's not been given to the government and so that that creates major jurisdictional roles as far as what the various um, institutions of the common world and, and the common age are meant to accomplish, um, that the state is not a divine entity. Uh, the family is not necessarily a divine entity insofar as the family doesn't mediate God's saving grace. The state doesn't mediate God's saving grace. The kingdom of God does. Uh, born witness through both the universal and local church. So then we get to the category of anthropology. Um, anthropology is merely the, the fancy theological category for doctrine of man. Um, when we look at how God has made us, as far as possessing um, moral agency, that we possess reason and rationality, we have a conscience, um, we desire to live lives of authentic expression um, authentic self-expression. Uh, the, the, the fancy phrase is self-constitution. Self-constitution is merely the idea that we want to live our lives on our own terms. Well, um, to me, that's a category that is, that is brought up into the categories of religious liberty because it means people are going to constitute their lives as best as they can grasp it. Um, religious liberty is not to, it, it does not say that how everyone constitutes their lives are all equal. Um, rather, it's simply saying that the faculties that people have 
that lead them to understand um, what truth is. Um, those are faculties that belong to them. Uh, I can't get saved for someone else. I can't actually effectuate belief in someone else. Their faculties, their conscience has to come to those, those truths on their own. Um, another component of the anthropological kind of stool of the book uh, is, is this notion that persons have to come to faith uh, uncoerced. Um, and then if they are living lives uh, of, of authentic faith, uh, they're going to desire to live that faith out in all aspects of their lives. And then that brings us to kind of the third category or the, or the, the third leg in the stool. I, in the book, by the way, I, uh, I talk about imagine a, imagine a stool with three legs that, that basically holds up the structure. And that's anthropology, eschatology, and missiology. But uh, to my point, with the issue of missiology, um, we ought to care about missiology and religious liberty because it undergird, undergirds so much of what we're wanting to do as far as the outward expression and outward advancement of the kingdom of God. Um, every socio-political community is going to have some attitude towards religion. And I think it is good for society to have just laws that allow religion uh, as much space as possible um, to, to live freely. Uh, and that's that actually reduces hostility. It reduces social conflict. Um, and when the state is operating in its lane, uh, it is actually indirectly playing a role in the mission of God. Um, when the state is, is not trying to play God, but it leaves room for the people of God to advance the mission of God, um, the state is indirectly facilitating people's access to salvation and redemption. And so that means uh, the call to religious liberty is a call to vigilance about the types of laws that society is creating that are either friendly towards re religious liberty and or or, uh, or inhospitable to religious liberty. So there's a whole lot more I could say here. That kind of is, is probably in broad um, brush enough to kind of get a picture for the book. Sure. Very good. Well, Dr. Walker, we've we've talked about the structure of the book here, um, some of the arguments you're making, some of the literature you're drawing from. Um, I'm glad you also included the epilogue to the book because it addresses a natural question that, that may arise from a book like this. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that just briefly here. And that question is how viable and, and legitimate is a liberal democracy for uh, the promotion uh, the promotion of 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 religious liberty is, is yeah. liberal democracy, the ideal political arrangement for religious liberty? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And, and again, that's, that's the tension and paradox my book has to wrestle with is um, I don't want to say that liberal democracy is necessarily the, the biblical framework for government. Um, but insofar as you understand that the state is not designed to play the role of God, um, well, then any type of political arrangement is going to bear some similarity or resemblance to liberal democracy. Uh, and so when we talk about liberal democracy, we're, we're talking about the idea of individual rights, of um, procedural norms that allow people uh, to uh, solve issues and complex issues in society through reason and debate and legislatures rather than through violence. Um, 
liberal democracy upholds the rule of law. Um, and so I would say that um, liberal democracy is uh, the worst form of government, except for all others that have been tried, to use the kind of uh, common phrase. I think Churchill said something similarly. Um, it's not perfect. Uh, and as we're seeing right now, I, I think we're actually seeing the birth pangs possibly of the of the decline and death of, of liberal democracy insofar as it has cut off its roots from its Christian tradition. In the book, you know, I'm not arguing for a um, account of liberal democracy from nowhere. I'm explicitly rooting it in a Christian tradition. I'm, I'm talking about, uh, I, I explicitly cite Roger Scruton in his understanding that um, liberal democracies are always tradition dependent. Um, and as I said in an earlier part of this interview, uh, where you have societies that are jettisoning biblical presuppositions uh, about the image of God, uh, about uh, non-material reality being ultimate, uh, you have, in my view, um, ecosystems and, and moral ecologies friendlier to religious liberty. But it doesn't mean that simply saying we have a liberal democracy is going to ensure the eternal perpetuation of liberal democracy. Uh, and without repeating myself too much from what I said earlier, um, where liberal democracy becomes defined solely um, by kind of the autonomous reasoning self, uh, what we call expressive individualism, uh, its understanding of rights are going to turn in on themselves uh, because you're going to have a tradition uh, of, or you're going to have a, an understanding of rights completely defined by the subjective self, uh, not in any uh, non-material horizons, uh, you know, defined by uh, goods that are not collapsible um, simply by, by the will, so to speak. Well, Dr. Walker, uh, perhaps your book here will encourage folks to read further on topics of religious liberty and, and the Christian engagement there or, or, or Christian natural law theory. Um, if that's the case, where, where should uh, those readers begin? So um, I would point people towards the work of um, Robert Louis Wilkin. He's a historian on these matters. Uh, I would point people towards the work of uh, my friend Ryan Anderson and Robert George. Uh, you know, there's um, a, a really great two-volume uh, two volume set by uh, Timothy Shaw that looks at the historical foundations for religious liberty and then uh, how those issues are being applied in a current context. Um, but, I mean, that's, that's a part of the issue is... Religious liberty does not have a lot of theorists to it right now because most religious liberty discussions are tied up into culture war issues. Um, and my book is specifically not a culture war book. In fact, um, I don't think I really talk about any of the issues of culture war and religious liberty. Um, my book is meant to kind of inform uh, a, a theology of religious liberty, not a uh, how do we solve religious liberties disputes in light of today's challenges. Very good. Well, Dr. Walker, you've been really gracious with your time today. Uh, before we wrap up, though, can you tell our listeners what you're working on at the moment and, and maybe what they might expect from you next? Yeah, so I'm under contract with B&H Academic for a book um, tentatively titled 
Explorations in Baptist Political Theology. It's going to be an edited book with Paul Miller from Georgetown and Tommy Kidd of Baylor. Um, and we're going to try to basically tease out, is there a Baptist political theology and what does it look like? And then um, I'm under contract with Crossway um, for a book called Evangelicals Engaging Robert George, which will be kind of um, a, an attempt to have Protestants engage with the thought of Robert George, who himself is a Catholic scholar. I think he's a very, very important scholar that a lot of social conservatives and evangelicals should interact with. And so it's kind of an attempt to translate his work into a Protestant audience. Um, and then I have a second edition of my transgender book coming out either later this year or in early 2022. Um, and then finally, I have a book that I'm working on um, with BNH Academic called tentatively His Glory, Our Good, uh, Evangelical Ethics for the Common Good, which will be um, honestly what I what I think could be a first of its kind evangelical natural law ethics primer. So it's still... Um, a ways out. It's not due until 23 and it won't come out until 24. Um, so I'm still actually in the kind of researching, outlining, thinking about the book, haven't begun writing it yet. So that's, that's the, the, the danger of the book uh, writing is you have the, you have the, the, the contract signed and you have the Evernote file with all of your ideas. And then at some point you have to start writing it. Well, those all sound like really good projects and, and we'll definitely keep an eye out for each of those. Uh, but for now, thank you for writing this book. It's called Liberty for All, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age. It's releasing May 4th. And Dr. Walker, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thanks, Zach. It was a good, uh, good conversation. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on New Books in Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.